The scripture lesson comes from Philemon 1 through 25. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to our beloved co-worker Philemon, to our sister Aphia, and our fellow soldier Archippus, I'm probably butchering all of these names, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I mention you in my prayers, because I hear of your love for all the saints and your faith toward the Lord Jesus. I pray that the partnership of your faith may become more effective as you comprehend all the good that we share in Christ. I have indeed received much joy and encouragement from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, my brother. For this reason, though I am more than bold enough in Christ to command you to do the right thing, yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love and I, Paul, do this as an old man and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I am appealing to you for my child, Onesimus, one whose father, uh, whose father I have become during my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him, that is, my own heart, back to you. I wanted to keep him with me that he might minister to me in your place during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing with but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your good deed may be voluntary and not something forced. Perhaps this is the reason he was separated from you for a while, so that you might have him back for the long term, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your, your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he, is, if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. I say nothing about you owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, let me have this benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I am writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. One thing more, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping through your prayers to be restored to you. Ephyrus, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristocrus, Damas, and Luke, my co-workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Last week we started this new series, Small But Mighty, exploring the smallest books of Scripture. And I'm sure while Will was reading the book of Philemon, it didn't feel too small, all 25 verses, but that's it. It's just a letter, 25 verses, uh, 335 words in Greek. Uh, pretty short book there. The fourth shortest book of the Bible, Philemon is. And we're unpacking about why on earth these books were even included to begin with. I mean, they certainly don't have the 66 chapters that Isaiah has or the 150 chapters that Psalm has. Uh, why is something so small included in such a significant book? 
The reason is because something so small can still have such a mighty impact on our world. We talked last week about the power of a seed, how small it is, but how great of a thing it can produce. Massive trees, sprawling bushes, and how something so small as a seed, once it bears that fruit, that continues to bear more and more and more and more growth. This is how the church itself operates. The church, when it began, was fairly small. Now, it's spread across the entire globe as uh, one of the largest global religions in Christianity. From something so small, such as 12 people coming together for one purpose, we look now at these small but mighty books. Their short words have powerful messages. Philemon might be one of the most beautiful and also a more controversial one. So a little bit of a background here. Philemon is one of Paul's most passive-aggressive letters. He, uh, he gets a little bit snarky. And I mean, he even says, you know, he, that he's in his old age whenever he's writing this. So, you know, he's just kind of fed up with dealing with people overall. He just, you know, just wants to tell it like it is. And we'll get into some of his snark snarkiness uh, further on in the letter. But he's writing to a man named Philemon. And Philemon uh, is a pretty wealthy guy who was the head of the uh, house of a house church in Colossae. Uh, Paul and Philemon probably met in Ephesus at one point. Ephesus was a big uh, central place for people where wealthy people gathered, and Paul did a lot of ministry there. Uh, and Philemon ends up taking what he learned from Paul and starting a house church in Colossae. Uh, this is where we get like the letter to the Colossians, or is also in the same city. Now, Philemon, being a wealthy guy, he has slaves. This is where the book gets kind of awkward, because that word has a lot of taboo uh, power around us, particularly considering our, uh, our country's own history with slavery. One of his slaves is a man by the name of Onesimus. And Onesimus, for one reason or another, we don't actually know what really went down. Onesimus, we think, as best as we can tell, stole some money from Philemon and ran away. Don't know anything more other than that's probably what ended up happening. And upon running away, what we speculate happened is that Onesimus ended up getting caught by uh, authorities and imprisoned in the same prison that Paul was at. And so he and Paul end up chatting. They learn a little bit about each other, their connection through Philemon. And uh, Paul begins discipling him. But in this discipling process, Onesimus acknowledges that he's pretty scared to return back to Philemon because, well, a runaway slave has lots of consequences waiting for them back home. Plus, Paul has grown pretty fond of Onesimus and says, I would like for you to stick around. But Paul sees the benefit of Onesimus returning back to uh, the house church in Colossae and back to Philemon. And so he sends this letter with him, telling Philemon that he is to welcome Onesimus back with open arms and as a brother, not as a slave. Paul goes on to describe how Onesimus will be useful for the work of the church. 
Plus, Paul gets kind of snarky at the end as he says, uh, tells Philemon about how, well, he kind of owes him everything. Paul in verse 19 says, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay whatever he uh, owes you. I say nothing about you owing me even your own self. Do you hear the snark there? He says, I'm not going to say anything about this while saying it, right? Yeah, that's, uh, again, Paul's being a little passive-aggressive here because he's kind of tired of the church not behaving like the church, especially its leaders not behaving like Christ. And finally, Paul uh, notes at the very end that he will be coming to Philemon in uh, a short amount of time, whenever Paul himself gets out of prison. And uh, this is just kind of the last cherry on top to say, like, you better do what I'm telling you to do because I'm coming to check on you. I'm going to follow up on this and see how well you've done. Ah, Paul, what a silly guy. The book of Philemon presents this complication in its narrative, slavery. Now, while there are some differences between the slavery that we see in the New Testament compared to the slavery that plagues American history, for instance, uh, in, in the New Testament, slavery was by and large a voluntary arrangement to help pay off debts, whereas the slavery we, uh, we know as the blight on our history is that of forced in, uh, in indentured servitude. The reality is that there's truly no benefit to the church or humanity found in slavery. That it is a toxic blight on all of civilization, and Paul knew this. Paul demands that Philemon accepts Onesimus back as a brother and not a slave because, number one, a runaway slave could be subject to any number of horrific punishments, even execution. That's why Onesimus was afraid to return. And number two, the church is supposed to be countercultural, operating different from the rest of the world. And it is an institution of love. Therefore, there is no room for slavery in the church. And we have this question, why is this? A silly question, I must add, but it's there. And the obvious reason is that slavery is quite frankly, a pathetic attempt of insecure humans trying to uh, control others. But more importantly, the church is about human relationship. We often forget this. We, get, uh, we strongly emphasize the whole uh, us and God relationship thing. But we forget that whenever Jesus was talking about the greatest commandment, we say, he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, you know what it is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, body, and strength. Yep, we got that. And the second is like it, or the second is equivalent to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's also the uh, fact that the church is about human relationships. Slavery is a dehumanizing relationship. It takes some people and elevates them above others, subjecting other people to the will of these people who see themselves as more important or more powerful than their slaves. 
It's a dehumanizing relationship. Slavery is also what we call an othering relationship. Othering means to see another person as other, or the word that we use, or the phrase that we use is us versus them. When we, when we use that word they, it's an othering concept. Slavery is an othering relationship. Slavery is also an unloving relationship. When we authentically love someone, we treat them with compassion, respect, understanding, and empathy. Slavery has no room for this because if it was indeed loving, we would put each other right on the same playing field, seeing each other as family. And the gospel of Christ has no room for slavery because the good news is all about love and connection and reconciliation. This is why Paul in Galatians, his, his letter to the church in Galatia, chapter 3, declares, For in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. As many of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. This is what the church is all about. Unity, reconciliation, togetherness. And this good news that Paul has to share is his entire life's work. Everything that he is about since his conversion experience is sharing this good news of reconciliation, of love in Christ. But here's the thing that he understands. The world doesn't get changed by a single person. It gets changed by many people working together for a common goal, for a common mission. But in order to do that, you need useful people. And people who aren't caught up in scandals, like Philemon was about to be. But Paul sees the need for useful people. And there's this fascinating play on words that ends up taking effect later on in the book of Philemon, because Onesimus, his name in Greek means useful. His name is literally useful. What a fascinatingly weird name. That's the Greeks for you, though. Paul tells Philemon that, and this is in verse 11, Formerly, Onesimus was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and me. Now, this is a countercultural mindset because a slave owner keeps slaves out of the belief that the slave will be useful in duties such as house chores, running errands, tending to property, and other menial tasks that the head of the house might not want to do. But Paul says that Onesimus was formerly useless because Philemon isn't just the head of his house. He's the head of the house church in Colossae. That means that his lifestyle must reflect the beliefs of the church. And as we have noted, there is no room for slavery and broken relationships in the church. For Onesimus to return to Philemon as a free brother he demonstrates the gospel. This is his usefulness. This whole book of Philemon is one long play on the great gospel message. Whereas once 
Onesimus was a slave to Philemon and ran away from him, he then returns as a brother, no longer a slave, but free, a brother to Philemon for the benefit of the mission and ministry of the church. Do you see the gospel message? Whereas once all people were slaves to sin and death, running from our God, in Christ we find love and the freedom to live eternally in the family of God through the reconciliation of what Christ has done, that we might benefit the mission of Christ through the ministry of the church. Onesimus has truly become useful because his story now reflects the gospel of Christ, a gospel of reconciliation. And this is exactly why this letter was written, to promote reconciliation. Paul sends this letter with Onesimus back to Philemon, essentially saying, take him back, but not as a slave. You receive him as a brother, as family. He is free. Onesimus, yes, has wronged Philemon by stealing money and running away. But Philemon has also wronged Onesimus by keeping him as a slave and placing unchristlike expectations on him. Paul writes this letter that the two of them might reconcile to one another in the love of Christ because that is what's most important for the life of the church. The sacrifice of Jesus was about reconciling us to God and us to one another. Whereas slavery is a dehumanizing relationship, the love of Christ is rehumanizing and places us on common ground with one another. Whereas slavery is an othering relationship, the love of Christ is a uniting relationship that connects us as family. Whereas slavery is an unloving relationship, the love of Christ is perfect love, harmony, compassion, and empathy for all, especially those who have wronged us and those we have wronged. Recall in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. The reason this small letter is so mighty is because it reflects the gospel message in a real relationship. And that's what our relationships are called to look like as well. The mighty lesson that this small book has to offer is that the love of Christ is uniting, not dividing. And that is more important now than perhaps ever before, because we are in a divisive point of human history. Politically, we are divided. Oh my goodness. Red versus blue, Democrat versus Republican, liberal versus conservative. It's all absolutely silly nonsense that we are like little children arguing over a toy and we want it our way. And we find reasons to despise the other party as if it were a party at all. Socially, we are divided. We keep strict barriers between races, genders, sexual identity, socioeconomic status, culture, disability status, and nationality. We like to stay around people who are like us and not those who are different from us or think different than us or act different than us because it's just easier to tolerate people like us. Educationally, we are divided allowing privately funded schools in our community to prosper while public schools are often neglected. 
even our churches are divided. As the United Methodist Church is going through a denominational conflict right now, there is all of this really horrible talk that goes on between these two people who think, no, this is the way that the church should go, or no, this is the way that the church should go. And all the while, the United Methodist Church is completely neglecting its communities because we think that our way is right or this way is right. And oh, all of the horrible things that the church is bringing into its community simply because it cannot acknowledge that the love of Christ is more powerful than our own personal preferences. But not a one of these reflects the love of Christ that is supposed to be uniting and reconciling in our relationships. Can you imagine if the love of Christ actually showed up in our politics? And we didn't have this absolutely ridiculous two-party system that kept us divided. Instead, we co cooperated together to promote the love of God and the love of neighbor in everything that we do. Can you imagine if socially we weren't so divided but instead saw the love of Christ that united us even in the face of our racial differences, gender differences, identity differences, economic differences, cultural differences, uh, disability differences, and nationality differences? If instead we were able to see our diversity as the beautiful example of Christ in our world? Can you imagine if even in our education or healthcare systems, we promoted the love of Christ that unites rather than pitting one another against each other. And I don't mean like the rivalries between college football kind of stuff. There's nothing wrong with that. But the fact that we have failing schools in our community, the fact that, that there are many right here around us who are overwhelmed with their medical bills, both of these in existence because we are unwilling to see another human being in the love of Christ as we have so been called. Can you imagine if the church itself actually embodied the love of Christ? No longer would we be yelling about, well, these people are trying to change this doctrine, or these people have this kind of theology, and that's just horrible, and these people are no longer loved by God, or these people are going to the bad place because of the way they think, and instead the church would actually be an institution that exists here in Mobile for the transformation of the world by welcoming in those who are other, by embracing all people with love, and by pouring every ounce of our time, energy, and resources into uplifting one another for the glory of God. Can you imagine if we actually lived with the uniting love of Christ? So if I can ask you to take a mighty lesson from this small book, it would be to start with yourselves, to reconcile relationships through the uniting love of Christ, where there might be divisiveness and brokenness in your own world. Let us be a people of reconciliation. Let us be a people of love. Let us be useful to the life and ministry of the church. And let us pray.